I was just about convinced that winter was going to be like that forecast in the movie Groundhog Day. It's going to be cold, it's going to be gray, and it's going to last you the rest of your life. <laughs> right? But uh, God is good, and one of the ways that we know is that it's beautiful out there. Uh, it is sunny. And it is beautiful. It's not quite time for sandals, unless you're my wife, who will wear sandals if it is above 40 degrees, <laughs> right? Uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, crocuses and tulips and hyacinths and green leaves and grass are soon to be here, right? And they're a reminder of God's grace for us and, and a reminder of uh, His mercy. And that no matter how dark life has been for a season, His mercy is capable of overcoming everything. Amen? Uh, it's been a big week for us at the Horn House. Uh, we got to hear uh, my daughters uh, sing and play at solo and ensemble. And then I got to take my eldest over to high school for orientation. And I've been practicing my speech for all of the young men she will meet there. And it's very short, very simple. It goes like this. I've got no problem going back to prison. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. Uh, but in any, in any case, um, God's mercy and grace is sufficient even for us who are parents and who are wondering how we got so old. Uh, because I am now going to be, this fall, the age that my dad was when I graduated from high school. And uh, that's kind of terrifying, honestly, uh, and have a high schooler of my own and so forth. So um, we finished looking at the Beatitudes this last week. Oh, before we get into this, one last thing. If you're a man, raise your hand. All right, raise your hand. Okay, now, you men, this is just for you, Okay. Uh, we don't do too many things that are just for men around here, but one of the things that we are trying to do this spring is have a men's retreat at uh, Great Oaks Camp up in Lakin uh, with opportunities to fish and to fellowship and to eat hot grilled meat and, uh, and to shoot some bows and arrows. And uh, those of us who are up for it uh, can be on the high ropes course. And if you've never done that kind of thing, that, that is a good time. Uh, be suspended in the air and have to rely on your friends to save your life. Uh, it's a good thing. Uh, and if you're interested in that, cost for all of that is $61. If you don't want to do the high ropes course, uh, we can save you a little money on that. If you do want to do it, uh, I'll be up there and, uh, and you all can laugh at me. Uh, but if you do want to do it, $61, that covers food and lodging and everything that we're going to do. So uh, see me if you want to do it. I need 20 bucks from you in the next couple of weeks uh, to hold a spot for you, and then uh, the remainder when we go. So uh, if you would uh, be interested in that, see me. We want to do this. Uh, be April the 10th and 11th, I believe, are the dates, but check the bulletin. Uh, we finished looking at the Beatitudes this past week, and they are beautiful, and those who possess these qualities in their life really do experience the blessing and favor and approval of the living God and nothing could be better than that amen to know that as you stand before God even in this life that you have God's favor and blessing and approval upon your life 
And if you exhibit these qualities that we've seen in the Beatitudes, you have them in, indeed. Uh, but as you look at these things, you see that there is, they are primarily an internal reality that you possess. They have to do with your own heart and your own interior life and your own attitudes toward various things and people and toward God. And there's a temptation, consequently, among certain sects and groups of Christianity to think that the spiritual life, if if you really want to live it well, what you need to do is you need to withdraw from everybody and you need to get isolated. You know, go live in a monastery somewhere or go live uh, apart from the rest of humanity where you can work on attaining, you know, more full development of these characteristics. But Christianity is not Buddhism, okay? You don't get closer to God in isolation from other people. Christianity is an away game. It is not played on home court on advantageous circumstances that you construct for yourself. It's an away game. And it must be lived, if it's going to be lived, Christian life is lived in the midst of other people. And in the midst of opposition, and in the midst of difficulty, and in the midst of the difficult circumstances of life. And it has to be lived out in a way that is visible and has an effect on the surrounding people in your life. That's part of the idea. And so these characteristics are not to be something that you just possess of yourself and you know, aren't I spiritual, and this, this is good, and I have the blessing of God. No, being a recipient of the blessing of God is meant to work out through your life to bless other people and to do good for other people. You know, you ever hear the expression, he's so heavenly minded, he isn't any earthly good, right? Uh, there, is no, there is no sense in which a Christian life is like that. In fact, you are not heavenly minded if you are not any earthly good to anyone else. You're not benefiting anyone else by your spirituality. You're not that spiritual. And so Jesus gives us two metaphors, uh, salt and light, uh, to tell us what life down here, life lived as a follower of Jesus Christ, is supposed to look like and the kind of effect that it's supposed to have on other people as we encounter them and as we're in relationship with them. Uh, these are so important, we have named our youth group after them, but they're, they are not something that comes to an end in their importance as soon as you graduate from high school. They are something that has an ongoing significance and importance for all of us. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to show these to you. Uh, In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16 is what we're going to look at today. We're going to look just at salt first. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, in the ancient world of Jesus' day, refrigeration was a fantasy. It was science fiction. You did not have it. And so if you wanted to eat meat, there were two ways you could do that. You could either uh, go cut yourself some steaks right now, 
fire the grill up and have steak or or hamburger or whatever it is you want right or you could eat it fresh or you could turn it into something salt cured you could turn it into ham or pastrami or jerky or uh, corned beef you had to do something that involved salt to preserve it because it was the only method that was available uh, you could um, you could make you know kippered herring or whatever you want but you had to have salt somewhere in the process if you weren't going to eat it fresh and therefore salt was hugely important wars were literally fought over possession of salt mines believe it or not in the ancient world they really did do that why because the only way of preserving food was with salt and in fact soldiers were paid a portion of their wages in it y'all heard the expression worth is salt right the idea is is that if you're a worthy soldier you got you earned the salt ration that was part of your pay salt was a hugely important commodity and so when Jesus tells his followers you are the salt of the earth he is assigning to them and also to us as his followers a hugely important function as a preservative in society. Because just like unrefrigerated meat tends to rot in a hurry, I mean, try this out, okay? Starting to warm up. You know, leave like a whole chicken out on your porch. See what happens, <laughs> okay? Just a couple days is all you need before that will be so nasty that you cannot, I mean, you can't even get near it, Right? unrefrigerated meat tends to rot in a big hurry so the fallen world that we live in tends very quickly toward decay and decomposition and toward disintegration and toward disorder and nastiness and part of the reason that christians are here is to keep the world from being as bad as it would otherwise be apart from our presence that's part of God's role for you and I, is to be a preserving influence in the world. You know, one day, the Bible tells us, one day the restrainer will be taken away out of the earth. Uh, the Holy Spirit will depart along with all who believe in Christ. And the world, if you've read Revelation, goes south in a hurry. Things get wicked and nasty and evil in a big hurry. Because there is nothing holding back the tide. And believers in Christ naturally play this preserving role in the world wherever they have begun to lay hold of and exhibit in, in relationship with other people the kind of beatitudes that Jesus has been describing. And if you make a list, and I know this to be true, because if you make a list of the worst places in the world... Right there, you will find Christians working to alleviate the circumstances that people are in, won't you? I mean, think about it. Uh, right there in the middle of this, you got an unplanned, unwed pregnancy. Guess what? There are Christian people, Christian men and women, who will help you through that circumstance. Who will um, set up adoption for you who will help you through your pregnancy, who will provide resources for you, who will give you clothes, who will 
give you baby formula, who will give you diapers, who will help you in the midst of that circumstance, whether you choose to keep the baby and raise it yourself or whether you choose to give it up for adoption, they will help you in that very difficult circumstance. Why? Because they are salt. And they're acting to preserve the world from descending into evil. Are you homeless? I got good news for you. Christian people run most of the world's homeless shelters and feeding programs. Are you starving? Christians founded and still operate the world's best and most and and first relief agency. Places like Samaritan's Purse go all over the world helping people who are starving and people who are displaced. Are you sick? Well, Christians started the first real hospitals. And they still operate clinics and doctors and hospitals in the very worst places in the world. In fact, did anybody watch the news coverage last year with the Ebola outbreak? Interesting thing. All those people are Christians that are going into these places. Why? Because what's the worst thing that can happen to me? I get Ebola, get sick, and die. But if I'm a Christian, that's promotion day. I got sick, I died, and I went to be with Jesus. So what? I'm going to go treat Ebola patients. Some of those docs that they interviewed with Emory University, I'll tell you how small the world is. My sister went to college with one of the docs at Emory. And it was she was interviewed on CNN or one of these channels, and it's telling about why they're doing what they're doing. And it's because of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has transformed their life. Are you an, an, an alcohol and drug abuser? Find a Christian. They'll help you. Are you an inmate? An orphan? A dropout? A gang member? Are you among the marginalized in society? Christians run to help them all. I reconnected this last week with a buddy of mine from my days at Taylor. I found out that he is running these days. He went and got his Ph.D., and uh, he runs an alternative school in the state of Indiana. And the way that they uh, get their kids is they go to uh, all of these high schools. They have 1,000 kids in 18 high schools, public high schools, uh, across the state of Indiana. And they go to these high schools, and they say, give me your dropout list. Give me the kids who are going to flunk out this year. Uh, Give me the kids who are on drugs, the kids who are in gangs, and the kids that you can't do anything with. We want all of them. And they take those kids, and they share the gospel with them. They give them job skills. They teach them to read. They teach them to write. They teach them basic math. And they lead them to faith in Jesus. And I'm like, Nate, how'd you get into this? He goes, well, I started out teaching, then I became a principal, and then, you know, this opportunity came along, and now we're doing this everywhere. He wants to come to Illinois, and I'd like to invite him. I've got to find a way. <laughs> uh, but, you know, why do they do that? Because there's salt in the world. Salt has a number of other properties, too, one of which Jesus specifically mentions, taste. It adds flavor to the things it comes into contact with right 
Now, a few months from now, it's going to be sweet corn season. Yeah. And you get the, the, the real butter, not margarine, not at my house anyway. Okay, you get the real butter, you run that ear of corn across there, let it all melt. Oh, yeah. And then you finish it off with what? Salt. Because corn is edible without salt, but it's not nearly as good, right? And a little bit goes a long way. In fact, uh, in the same way that even the presence of a few Christians in a place can have a much bigger impact than their numbers alone would indicate. And your presence in other people's lives can make them thirsty to know your Savior. And that is part of your role. Add flavor and taste and to, and to preserve the world from being as bad as it would otherwise be. But it is possible, Jesus says here in this verse, to lose your saltiness. A lot of the salt in Israel in Jesus' day came from the Dead Sea. Now, Karen, you'll have to talk to her about this afterwards. She actually went swimming in the Dead Sea this last summer with Wendy Murdian, which is amazing. Someday I want to do that. Uh, not swim with Wendy, but swim in the Dead Sea. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, that didn't come out right. Um, <laughs> There we are. Okay, but in any case, um, salt, the salt in the Dead Sea is mixed with a lot of minerals, a lot of other minerals, uh, not, just, uh, not just salt, but things like bromine and other kinds of minerals that are out there. And so, but you would gather your salt and you could take the, uh, you could take a chunk of it and if you left it out long enough, exposed to both uh, moisture in the air as well as just over time it would just the salt would start to leach out of that stuff and and what happened then was that you would be left with this chunk of just minerals none of which is tasty none of which uh, continues to operate like salt should as flavoring and as a preservative for your meat and so it could lose literally its saltiness and when it reached that state all they all that you could do with it would be to take all this leftover stuff that it was mixed with and throw it out in the road where it would at least have a function of keeping the weeds knocked down but it was just something to walk on at that point it was no longer good for its intended purpose and the reality of it is is that some Christians live their life and they mix their faith in the way they live their life with a lot of other impurities of the world. And the result is a mixture of stuff that is not good for anything. Their Christian life and their Christian faith loses its distinctive flavor and it no longer functions to reduce the effects of sin and evil in the world because they have become just like it. They have taken on all of the things that people out in the world do and they have a faith that no longer functions in the way that it should. And the world has done them more harm than they have brought goodness to it. And there ought to be a complete contrast 
between a Christian life and everyone else's. Because a Christian life is called to be pure salt in the world, changing it for the better rather than allowing it to change them for the worse. Amen? That can happen. I've seen it happen. I've seen kids who grow up in church and they are walking with Jesus when they're in youth group. Maybe they're even leaders in the youth group and they go off to college and they basically... You know, are like the prodigal son. You know, they, they uh, to use the King James la- language, squander their sustenance in riotous living, right? <laughs> uh, they went off and they went crazy. And they kind of punted their Christian faith for a while. And rather than being salt in the presence of their friends, they become just like all of their friends. And they begin to take on all the characteristics of the world that they are there to preserve the world from doing. And to, in, to be a positive influence the other way. You know, I think you see this on a large scale in the United States of America. Supposedly, 25% of the people in this country claim to be evangelical Christians. But wouldn't you think that if that were true, that a pound of meat would be more affected by a quarter pound of salt. Doesn't that seem, seem logical? And why is that not true? Because in all kinds of places you can measure, people who claim to be Christians don't live actually any different than the rest of the world. And that is not what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to be the strong pure, unmixed version of the faith. The one that has an effect for the better on everybody that they're around and in contact with. Amen? He also said, let your light shine. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, light is a beautiful thing. It promotes life. Plants can grow indoors if they have light, even if it's artificial light. They can grow. Uh, Broken bones and wounds heal faster when they are brought into the light. If you have mildew or you have mold, you, can, you have bacteria somewhere. You can kill it if you bring it into the light. If we weren't so time-bound in our culture and so wrapped up in our alarms, then the normal way that you wake up in the morning is by the intrusion of light from the outside into your room. The normal rhythms of your body are set up on the cycle of light and darkness in the day. By the way, only the government could believe that you can cut a foot off the top of a blanket, sew it onto the bottom, and have more blanket, right? Same thing is true. <laughs> Same thing is true with time and daylight, right? 
you want more daylight in your day, get your butt out of bed <laughs> and leave me alone, <laughs> right? But here's the reality. Light is a beautiful thing, and it's therefore a scriptural metaphor for the spiritual life and for the possession of spiritual life in a number of places. And whenever I read about light and, and the impact of light versus the darkness, I'm immediately in my memory. This is one of these memories that just sticks in my brain. I'm transported back to being a teenage boy uh, going deer hunting with my dad because we would always get up at O-Dark 30 to go. And we would drive out to Putnam County, Indiana, out to the little town of Bainbridge. And we had the, the uh, permission to hunt on this guy uh, named Frank Myers farm. He had 450 acres of the most beautiful deer hunting ground you've ever seen. And we would get there, and it would still be dark when we would get there, and we would be hiking up to our deer stand in the dark. And it would still be dark after we got in our stand for probably another half hour. And so to get there to the stand, you had to hike through the woods. And if you've ever walked through the woods in the dark, where it's really dark, you know that the one thing that you really want is a flashlight. There were no trails or anything. We are just going through the bush uh, up to the top of this hill. And there's, in the woods, there's thorns, and there's limbs, and there's sticks, and there's holes, and there's logs that are laying there that you can't see if it's dark. Dad had the light. And so he would walk, and I would be right on his heels because I was not going to get lost in the dark in the woods, uh, A, but also because I want, if I would be close enough to him, I could see everything that he could see. And so I could watch out for logs and limbs and sticks and thorns and things that might hurt me. And walking in the light got us all the way there. And at the end of the day, it would be get us all the way back to the truck. You had to walk in the light to have that happen. And I think Jesus had those kinds of qualities of light in mind when he says to his followers in those days and says by extension to us through the scriptures in Matthew here, you are the light of the world. Because light is good and it brings life to everything it touches. And part of our purpose as people of Christ is to bring light and life into the world. And to help us with that, Jesus has placed us like a city on a hilltop. You know, we drove home from Solo and Ensemble this week, and it, and it was in the evening, and, and I could look over on the bluff over to the west, and you can see those big, beautiful houses up on top of that, and they're all lit up. And they're a couple of miles from where I am on the road. But nevertheless, you can see them. Why? Because they're up on the hill, and they're giving off light. And you can see them for a long way. You can probably see him on the other side of the river. And the builder had made them visible. And you know something else? This is also true. The darker the place, the more one light makes a difference. Just like a, an ancient homeowner, you know, he'd take his one little oil lamp, they were about this big, 
fill them up with oil, and they put a wick down the spout, and they light it. And then they put it in a, on a stand in the middle of the room. The reason you do that is because if you elevate that light, it casts down to a broader area over the course of the room. That's why we hang our lights on the ceiling. And But one light makes a big difference in a dark place. And so that homeowner would take that one light and put it in the middle of the room on a stand where everybody could see it. And then it gives light to the whole room. And God, in the same way, has deliberately placed you and I where He wants us to be so that we can visibly shine for Him and make the most difference. And our presence is meant to reveal sin, to promote life, and to demonstrate the goodness of following Christ. And we are called to dispel the darkness and to reveal the truth of how things really are and how things really should be rather than how sin has corrupted the world and made it. And since all this is true, Jesus gives us this command. He tells us to shine. Let your light shine is not a suggestion, it's an imperative. A light's job is to shine, and so he is not simply suggesting this is something we might do. He is commanding it. How do we shine? By doing good works so that those who don't know Jesus might see the light of our transformed life and glorify God as a result. I do not know how many people have come to Christ because they have encountered a Christian living their life out in front of them and seen their transformed life and has been very attractive to them. And so they've come to that Christian that they know and said, there's something different about you, and I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, I want it. Can you explain it to me? And then they have the marvelous privilege of saying, yes, it's because I have put my trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone, and His presence has made me the way I am. Amen? It's letting your light shine rather than hiding it where it can't be seen. It's bold faith lived out and boldly spoken in a way that sticks out like a city on a hill or a single light lit in a dark room. Now, I should just warn you here in the last few minutes we have that not everybody will love you if you are salt. Salt doesn't just preserve and flavor things, it also stings and irritates sometimes. It can be used to heal wounds, but it burns when it is applied. And some people will recoil from that as a result. And I am not saying, by the way, that you need to go out of your way to be irritating and annoying. Uh, God is not calling you to be obnoxious, right? Uh, to be a pain in the neck to everybody. But what I am saying is, is that if you live a biblically faithful pure, bold, salty life, you are not always going to be loved by everybody you meet. And that's okay. And it is no reason to stop being salt. And it is no reason to start mixing in 
some of the impurities of the world so that you stick out less. It is in fact a reason to do the opposite. Because doing that, you know, if you mix your Christian life with stuff from the world, it might make you more comfortable for a while, but it won't do you or anybody else any good. Because there are lots of people who live their life like that. Salty people make a difference. And in the same way, not everybody will love you if you are light in the world. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 3, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. That's true. Sometimes the reason that people don't like you because you're a Christian is because the contrast with their life is so extreme that they feel convicted by the way that they live. And they don't like you. They would rather live in the dark. And they would rather you go away and leave them alone. And if they don't like you, that's okay. Make sure they don't like you, not because you're a jerk, but because you are shining for Christ. Nevertheless, we're commanded to shine. Amen? And we are the light of the world. We are a city on a hill. We are the lit oil lamp on a stand in the center of the room. And God has placed us where He wants to use us, where we can shine best, where we can bring the most light to the world around us. And we are God's people. Amen? And God has planned for us to have a positive effect on the world. And if we are God's people, we must do good in the world. We must. If we're not, we're not doing our job. We are here to carry the light of Christ in the gospel and to be salt in the world with good works. To point people to Jesus and to the Father, and to a relationship with the, with, with the Father through faith in Christ. Amen? That's why we're here. And so we don't withdraw from the world. We don't close ourselves off from it. We don't hide our light from it. We don't mix our life with it. We purify our life from the world. And we shine in it that we might act as a preservative and a life-giving source of life to the world. We bring light to it. So let's prayerfully consider just a couple things here as we wrap up our time together. Number one, are there any impurities mixed with your life that diminish your usefulness to the Lord Jesus and dilute the flavor of Christ you are meant to? in part that's a long question let me read it to you again okay are there any impurities mixed in with your life that diminish your usefulness to the lord jesus and dilute the flavor of christ that you are meant to impart you want to write them down they're already on the back of your small group notes but why has God placed you where He has? Why has God placed you where He has? 
you know, just like the master of the house sets that lamp where he wants, the master of this house has set you where he intends for you and I to be. God puts us where he wants us. So why are you there? And to whom and in what ways do you need to shine in that place? If you have a job, then God has ordained for you to have that job at this particular time, at this particular place in your life. Why? What are you supposed to be doing there? Hint, it's not just fixing transmissions or selling insurance or uh, bandaging wounds or changing bedpans or whatever it is you do. You are there for a reason. And it isn't simply to collect a paycheck. Amen? So why are you there where you are? And last one, where do you need to be salt and make things better for other people than they were when you showed up? Where do you need to be salt? And what are you going to do? Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made us salt and light in a dying and dark world. You have enabled us to be preservative, keeping things from being as bad as they were, bad as they would be without our presence there. You have given us the opportunity to give off the flavor of Christ in the world and to draw people to yourself and to shine, Father, in the world with good works so that people might see that we are different people than everybody else and that the lost might be drawn to you like moths to a flame. Father, we pray that we would be salt and light in the world. That we, when we have left, would leave it better than we found it because of the transforming power of Christ operating through us. And that many people would have heard the gospel proclaimed with our lips because of the testimony of our life. We pray in Jesus' name.